they need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. And good morning. Welcome to Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. Uh, coming up in our program later, we're going to be talking with uh, Talia Rodriguez about her role as associate director of the West Side Promise Neighborhood. And also Thomas O'Neill White talks about health equity with Jessica Bauer Walker, the founder of the Community Health Worker Network of Buffalo. Now we are experiencing some technical difficulties this morning. And with that, uh, we'll be getting to those two members of our conversation later in this hour of Buffalo What's Next. But in the meantime, we thought we'd have a, a little bit of an encore presentation of an earlier conversation we had this week with Paul Perez. Paul, thanks for joining us. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Peace. How y'all doing? <laughs> well, we're doing okay. Paul is involved in a lot of different things. He, he says he's uh, the uh, site director for Home Headquarters, but uh, that's his 9 to 5, as he tells me. But he is involved in a couple of other things, a lot of it having to do with real estate, uh, better living interests, and also better living uh, logistics, too, correct, as correct. well. So we want to get into all those things. But I think, P Paul, one of the things that, that really strikes us about your experience and your thoughts is just about when it comes to general generational wealth and the lack thereof when it comes to a lot of black people. Mm -hmm. Just a, a general thought about that, what you are seeing and how perhaps maybe you're going about your experience to try to overcome that. For sure. Um well, I, I take my experience back to my origins, right? Um, I'm originally from the South Bronx, Bronx, New York City, uh, home of the Yankees. <laughs> um, for everybody that loves them out there, we appreciate it. Uh, we, you know, coming from that environment, I tell people, especially here in Buffalo and Western New York, I'm pretty much the equivalent of your Bailey Kensington, your Broadway Fillmore neighborhoods, you know, underserved, uh, the almost... The forgotten communities, um, you know, New York City, yes, is big, 8 million people. The Bronx alone is 2.8 million, um, but we don't get the same services and the same uh, resources that uh, other communities or affluent communities get. And when we do get it, it's more so as we're targeted, like a targeted population and quotas for organizations and groups. Um, so for me, growing up in New York, growing up as a kid, I saw those adversities of crime. I saw violence. I saw uh, drugs and what that did to not only my community, but, you know, what those things did and hit my home. You know, I've had uh, the good where I had law enforcement. Um, I have family who are um, detectives, NYPD. Um, I have also family and friends that also serve time in Rikers, mm. you know, and I also have a father-in-law who was a corrections officer in Rikers. So I got to see, you know, both paradigms of the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I took the initiative, and I really just had this inner self-motivation that a lot of people, you know, tell me about sometimes to my own detriment, 
But uh, they always say, man, you're so confident in yourself. Like, you, you just don't stop. You keep believing in yourself and you keep going. And uh, that's what led me to go to school, do what I had to do. I played sports. And Did I eventually... Did you play ball at, uh, yeah, at Buff State? Uh, no, I didn't get to play oh, ball okay. at Buff State. Uh, but I thought I was when I initially came up here. I thought I was going to yeah, play football. I was like, oh, okay, it's a D3. I could probably just go in as a walk-on and right. do my thing. But um, I went to Buff State. That's what led me here in 2007, uh, undergrad. Um, and then I, I got into some things um, to my own doing. You know, young kid coming up from New York City. Um, first what was time it like coming into, coming into in. Buffalo from New York City and, and that Buff State community? It was, it was a culture shock. Um, I think for me, you know, Buffalo itself is very different from New York City. Um, the housing, the atmosphere is more of a um, hometown type of feel here. Whereas in New York, you know, it's a big city, you know. Um, but I, I do love the, the fact that, you know, all my friends from Buffalo, everybody here, my family, um, they love the Bills. You know, <laughs> you can't get you can't get away from it. You know, so they have been trying to convert me for several years now. Even when the team wasn't doing too well, to be a Bills fan. So you know, in my mind, I'm I'm a Jets Giants. Okay. You know, I, I rep New York City, but I do support the Buffalo Bills, and I'm happy to see them win. And we're happy to have you along on the wagon. That's for sure. <laughs> as we go through a hopefully a great season here. But hey, sure. uh, let's uh, then talk uh, about when we go uh, uh, when it comes to black generational wealth. This is interesting. You, you've looked at the, the situation. What are the things that stand out? What, do you, what are things that people need to understand when it comes to black generational wealth and some of the issues? I think the, the statistic I've seen is the average black household has one-tenth mm. of the uh, retirement income built up or savings built up that the average white household would have. Yeah, and I also... Like an, another alarming statistic was I learned that black population, though maybe 12 percent of the country's population, only owns 1 percent of the country's wealth. And within the next 20 years, that population will own less than 1 percent of the country's wealth. And I look at, you know, other groups like uh, Jewish Americans or Chinese Americans, and I just see how they are a smaller population in size, but they own more than the black population, I want to say, within the Jewish community, it's about in the 20 percentile rate. So to me, it, it just was, was a sticking point. And, and to the to the earlier point of me coming to Buffalo, yeah. um, I had to live off campus. Um, so when I lived off campus, I was living on Grant and Bradley. And I was in entrenched in the West Side. And I was like, oh, okay, this is comfortable. I'm familiar with this. I come from the Bronx. This looks, you know, very similar right. to where I come from. And then I started noticing, like, you know, yeah, I'm in the Bronx. Uh, uh, I'm now in Buffalo. But, man, like, these houses are, like, in turmoil. Like, I was living next door to vacant abandoned properties. You know, my apartment essentially was what they considered an old trap house. So they used to sell drugs out of there um, a long time ago. And they thought because now I lived there that, you know, they were still selling drugs. So people would knock on the back of our door, you know, trying to get drugs. And we kind of had to tell them, like, no, we don't. We're wow. college students. We're just here, you know, just to rent and go to school. So it took some time. But now, you know, if you drive on 
all along Grand Street, you have now seen that transformation of that community and what that community looks like. Um, and to your point about the generational wealth, you know, you think about all those families and those peoples that originally lived there in the west side of Buffalo, in the east sides of Buffalo, um, even the Fruit Belt part of Buffalo. And you see how now those neighborhoods were, you know, entirely destituted, weren't the areas of, of interest. Nobody wanted to put money or resources into there or even dare live there. And now it's, you know, where to be. You know, people are buying. I'm seeing nothing but new construction. Are you seeing your real estate? A hundred percent. I mean, I'm constantly driving. I'm constantly, you know, talking to people. I'm constantly helping people in my um, position as a site director. Um, we do a down payment um uh, excuse me, we do 2% down payment mortgages with no PMI. We also do, uh, uh, what you call it, uh, home improvement loans and grants for single-family homeowners and also for multi-use. Uh, so for landlords that invest in um, properties here, specifically in Buffalo, they will qualify for a grant in combination with a loan. Um, and we also do new construction. Um, that's what the company does. So I'm constantly doing that on my daily work. And then on my own business, you know, I'm looking at the community and, and I had the privilege of um, when I had finished school and, and I was going into grad school at Buffalo State College, I got an internship in City Hall. And when I was working in City Hall, I was working in the Division of Citizen Services. So I got to get a, a feel of what does the ombudsman of the city of Buffalo look like, where all the calls, where all the concerns, the, you know, the hotline, essentially, and get connected to all the city departments. And that's where I eventually leveled up, graduated with my master's degree, and I became the um, coordinator for the Save Our Streets Task Force. And in that time, that's when I started doing all these clean sweep programs all throughout the city and I was looking at data to match the resources with the different organizations to come out there and do it on a weekly basis. Let's talk about the clean, uh, clean sweeps uh, initiative and now you're not involved in it like you were at that time. Correct. Uh, but what is it exactly? Just make sure we understand what we're talking about here. Sure. So the Clean Sweep is a unique public-private partnership. Um, basically, it's headed from the mayor's office, and it just connects all the city departments, county um, agencies, state agencies, federal agencies, along with uh, not-for-profits, local not-for-profits, and local businesses to go into the community and provide resources and services, whether it be um, broken into three teams. So there's the beautification and restoration team, you know, cleaning up the vacant houses. Before, when I first started, they were demolishing vacant houses. Right. That has changed now. But um, And as know, a real estate person, you think that's good? Uh, I do. Okay. I do. I All do. Because right. I think that now we're at the point where everything is cleared, and now we need to start building. Gotcha. Okay. Right? Um, so then you had that, and then you also had the... Um, Outreach, community outreach teams, um, which is one of my favorite groups because they go out door to door and they're giving their information and services, talking to the residents in the community. Also, not only just giving services, but collecting information and data from the community members to then better enable us as a city at the time to, you know, deliver these services in a more effective manner. And then you have the uh, what we call codes and law enforcement. And that was probably to me one of the greatest parts of it is because now you get to have community police officers going into the community, speaking to the residents and working with them. At the same time, you also have um, housing code officials going out there and, um, you know, doing summonses and, and warnings for those that need repairs, specifically, you know, those absentee landlords right. that are out there 
that do like to take advantage of, you know, renters. And I can speak to that being a renter, you know, coming from Section 8 housing. Even when I was in college, I had food stamps while going to school full time at Buffalo State College, you know. But just because I was on government services to get to that next step in my life doesn't mean that I didn't deserve the same good, fair, equitable quality of life like anyone else does. We're all paying the same money. So, you know, provide the same equitable services. So to me, working on that, being a part of that, leading that initiative really helped me kind of um, lead my direction into what I want to do with the rest of my life and, and specifically my career. We're talking with uh, Paul Perez uh, this morning on uh, Buffalo What's Next. A lot of different things that we can talk about here, and we did touch upon the generational wealth. But I'm interested at your experience, though, with the, uh, the, the Clean um, Sweep uh, program or initiative and, and the outreach part of it. That's mm -hmm. interesting to me. So you're going up to houses in, on a given street, a given block or whatever, walking up to people. What kind of reactions did you get? Uh, continuously, you know, good, received well. You know, people like that. People do want to see. They appreciated that, uh, that contact. Of course, of course. Especially, you know, when I'm going out there representing um, the organization that I work for, Home Headquarters, and I'm, you know, providing them with uh, information and an application saying, hey, listen, we can help you with your roof. We can help you with your foundation. We can help you with your windows that are in such, you know, need of repair because those are the original uh, windows that you got the house when, when it was built, you know? Right. So... For me, all of that just um, allows me to, to reach the people effectively on a one-on-one -on -one basis. And at the same time, it also allows me to constantly receive new ideas, receive new information, like what is the people in need of? Because I think a lot of times with organizations, they, they all have good intentions, and even in government, anywhere you go, even business, right? Everybody has their idea. They came up. They did what they had to do. They excelled. They exceeded, and they reached a certain point. But then that could also be your ceiling. You don't want to apex. You want to keep going. Right. So you got to also know that the people in which you serve, they're the ones who steer the ship. So just always having that ear and um, eyes on the street and, and your heart connected to those people really helps make you genuine. And I think for me, that's always been like my my staple here in, in Buffalo and why I've been received so well is, you know, to many other community members when I go to um, block club meetings, um, speaking to the board of block clubs, talking to different organizations, going to town hall meetings. You know, they always look at me and receive me as like a young brother or to, to the elder women. Right. I'm usually like their young grandson, you know. So I appreciate that and I'm thankful. And, and they always see me as he's he's here to help. So I appreciate that. And I'm always trying. Because that's not always... The reaction, I would think that not, not, you know, not everybody is necessarily accepted when it comes to, hey, I, you know, I'm here to help. Yeah, everybody's here to help, but maybe not everybody is accepting that outside help as as much. But yet, you you find a different experience. For sure, I mean, I I always uh, told myself as what's the definition of leadership, and to me. My personal opinion is leadership is someone who's close enough to relate to, yet I had enough to follow. And I've been through the trenches. You know, I'm from the, the hood. 
You know, I'm right. from these neighborhoods. Um, so I know what it is to struggle. I know what it is to, you know, just keep trying and, and, and trying to do the right thing and doing the right thing and consistently putting your best foot forward and having faith in God. Um, at the same time, taking those blessings and now leveraging it and working on it and and as you go up you know i took the stairs i go up i'm always looking back as how can i help the next person so you know i'm a i'm a community champion at heart i just have different outlets as to how i can do that right no doubt it's uh, impressive uh, the way you've gone about doing this for sure when you look at kids 16 15 14 year old kids do you think back to the kids that you were growing up with in the South Bronx? Do you think of yourself? And, you know, what can you say to these kids? For sure. Actually, I spoke to them uh, this summer. We had a uh, shout-out to the Yale Academy. Uh, my brother, Lee Anthony Freeman, uh, Buffalo native, uh, also a fraternity brother of mine, Prince Hall Mason, Ionic Lodge number 88. And uh, he... You're he, always networking, are you? <laughs> listen, I'm, I'm always working. I'm, yeah. in, I'm in the community, you know. I'm, I'm here. I'm, I'm really entrenched um, into this work, and this is my heart. This is my passion. And I think that you can always... You know, I told the kids... So what I did was, over the summer, I taught them about um, credit, Right? I taught them about the basic principles of credit, how to use that, what does that look like for themselves. I taught them about how to create an LLC, and I taught them about real estate. And I'm a big proponent of uh, the three uh, most financially successful people in the country, right, tend to be those who invest in real estate, right, those who invest in stocks and bonds, Right. As we saw in the Great Recession, those 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 groups, those organizations still rose. Right. Mm. The same thing with the housing market. It took a hit, but it still rose to, you know, incredible new heights now. And then um, those who also own businesses, you know, those three um, groups or people, you can be all of one or you could be two of three. But you got to be in one of those fields because those are the people that get the most tax benefits. Those are the people that actually rise with the tide when the economy comes back. So, you know, for me, you know, going back to the black wealth and what I spoke with with the students, I was teaching them, this is how you build black wealth. This is how you build that passive income or just even have assets in which you own that if anything happens or things hit the fan you have this for yourself and your family and you could potentially live off of this and pass this down to the next generation and the next generation is what we need to focus on when you look at kids like that like you were talking to this summer i'm sure they were enraptured with the idea of having the possibility of having wealth but at the same time there must be pitfalls what do you see are the pitfalls for for young people? For sure. I mean, speaking to my black and brown community here in Buffalo and to nationwide and even further throughout in the world, worldwide, um, we're not privy to those resources. We're not privy to those conversations. You know, um, our education system really doesn't put an emphasis on teaching uh, kids, even in college, teaching you about credit like what is your FICO score you know simple things like that a budget you know I always start off my credit uh, classes uh, and consultations with do you have a budget okay you don't have a budget all right we need to work on a budget basic simple what's your income what's your expenses 
This is your net operating income. You know, this is this is what you have left over to work with. And then when we have those conversations and we go through those um, exercises, they start to realize, like, yeah, I wanted a car, but you know what? This car may be a little bit too much right now, so let me just save up, and then I'll eventually get a car when I have three months of savings. So I have, you know, um, three months of my car payment. You know, uh, my rent is paid. I have all my bills in order and I can sustain myself, you know, to my next job or my next uh, position in my career. That sounds like obviously a a great approach to, to things. At the same time, kids are being marketed to, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, from outside interests who, you know, they don't really care about their budget. They don't really care about um, their generation of wealth. They just care about getting their money from their pockets into their corporate coffers. Is that something that you see as a troubling landscape as well? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think even for adults, not even just children. <laughs> sure, <laughs> trust me. <laughs> you know, I think a lot of us, you know, and it's just the American way, right? What, even America, you know, I can't, I can't tell, you know, the micro uh, how to do things if we're not acknowledging the macro. And the macro is, is that America's in debt. You know, trillions of dollars in debt to other nations, right, that we're supposedly competing against. And it's like, how can you get out of that? Well, you got to be a producer. You got you to stray away from being a consumer and start focusing on being a producer. And I think for us, you know, I like nice things. I like to wear, you, you know. amazing sneakers. Oh, I appreciate it, brother. <laughs> appreciate it. Shout out to Y3, Yohoji Yamamatsu, and shout out to Soho in New York City. We out here. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> but um, you know, I do like nice things, and I did show the kids. I showed the kids that, you know, I'm driving a Tesla. I did show the kids, you know, I, I do have all the, you know, the new Yeezys and stuff like that. But I only have what I have because I could afford it. And that's what we got to get into. We got to get into the mindset of what is affordability. And there's things that I have passed up on because I'm willing to have that delayed gratification. You know, for me, you know, having to have food stamps, having to, you know, um, grind and go to go to Buff State full time, go travel all the way to the mall because the bus took an hour just to get all the way out to Chictawaga, you know, and I only had but maybe $20 in my pocket for the week to, you know, basically buy any food at that time, you know, outside of the food that I had at my house, you know, it, it put a lot of things in perspective and that adversity, those obstacles really helped refine me and focus me in to say, all right, you need to get the things that you need and then you can, you know, scale up you can start building your um, income, and then you can budget and have, you know, maybe 10% allocated to things that you want, you know, and preserve your stuff, protect your stuff. You know, that there's getting things, right, that you want or uh, getting assets. Then there's protecting those assets, right, that you want. And then is expanding and building on those assets to try to accumulate more. And I, that's the American way. That's the true American way. We follow the leaders, the, the, the entrepreneurs, those um, business owners, you know, the, the civil rights movement was led by the entrepreneurs and the blacks that, you know, who invested in the community. They had to pay for Martin Luther King and, and all of these civil rights leaders to go on these buses, to travel, to preach the good word. But there was still money involved. You know, we, we still live in a capitalist democracy. And we saw in the 2016 elections and beyond, even currently with Joe Biden, that capitalism is always going to win because how do they pay for these billion dollar now campaigns? Right. It's money. So if we can preserve our money and take our money and use it like seeds, 
right? So the wise farmer is going to plant that seed and give it the nourishment that it needs so that way it can grow. But if if your money is like a seed and you're not planting them and you're not growing them, then what are you doing? Are you eating them? Are you throwing them away? What are you going to do when, you know, there, there, there's a drought? There's no abundance. You got to be able to have some, some self-sustainability. And that's my biggest thing to promote to the community is we need to start focusing on being producers instead of just being consumers. And I think you actually just answered the question right there, but I'll ask it anyway. For this community, for the Buffalo community, you're obviously a, a big picture guy, yet you're working down in the trenches at the same time. Right. What's obstructing that message from the community? Um, definitely the media. You know, we have a lot of, in our community, a lot of negative um, depictions of ourselves. We, we too much associate wealth with material things. Um, and that's why, for me, it's kind of like you got to have the sugar before you give the vinegar. Right. So I, I showed them like, yes, you can have nice things and you can do it with integrity and build and take care of your family. Um, you know, we do have obstructions and I'm proud to say it, you know, from and it's just not local, but just overall too, right? Like governments, you know, our, the government has failed black people consistently. Um, we tend to um, be sold uh, what we call in our neighborhoods the wolf tickets. <laughs> a wolf ticket. A wolf ticket. So basically, you know, it's like crying wolf, you know, but it, it, it doesn't amount to anything. And I think for us, we need to stop trying to put all our eggs in the basket of, you know, hope and, and, and uh, government. Because government can't just do everything by itself. You know, and I learned that when I worked in City Hall, like, it was great, and it was a, a beautiful opportunity, and I'm forever thankful because it, it allowed me to start my career and really understand the community and, and what I want to do. Um, but I also acknowledged and learned that as much as I was going into these communities that were underserved and putting all the resources and energy into it, I also realized that the community is, is the number one uh, leader for the community to get out to, to, to rise. So, you know, that's why I'm, I'm really a big proponent on not putting blames to anyone, yet, you know, acknowledging the atrocities and the things that are going on, speaking truth to power, right? And at the same time, going back to my community and saying, hey, we have to do better. We have to invest in ourselves. And investing in ourselves is not just, uh, you know, purchasing the assets. Investing in ourselves starts with, you know, our health. Uh, our mental health, our spiritual health, um, you know, making sure that we're taking care of our household. You know, is there love going on within each other? Like, can you see your, your fellow brother in the neighborhood and just say, you know, peace, brother, peace, king, how you doing today? You know, like, I want to, my shine is your shine and vice versa. You know, I want to see you win because you winning makes me feel good and I'm winning. So, you know, just being uh, a part of that and working together as a community, I think really is what's going to help take us to the next level. And, you know, you just got to take the time, right? Because I tell the kids specifically, I'm like, y'all on TikTok, y'all on IG, right? But you're looking at sneakers, you're looking at cars, you're looking at clothes, you know, but are you looking at ways to, you know, create some wealth for yourself? Because the job markets are scarce. You know, I remember even myself coming up 21 years old, bachelor's degree, refined. I could come in with a suit and tie, but I'm still not getting the same job opportunities as, you know, 
my white counterparts that come from more so African countries. So what did you do? I just kept pushing. I just kept pushing. I just kept saying to myself, um, you know, listen, you're going to win. It's going to come. There will be a break for yourself. Um, but you also need to learn that you have to build something on your own. And, you know, when I did get the door, the op the opportunity in the door, right, the blessings from others um, and all the people that had looked out for me, um, I took that opportunity and I ran with it. And I said, okay, now I'm in, but this isn't the end-all, be-all, because I think this is relatable across the board, you know, whether white, black, or, what, or whatever your ethnicity. When you're going to college, you know, you're in that rat race. So you're in college thinking, I'm going to get out of school, I'm going to get a good job, and everything's going to be okay. Well, that's not really it, right? right. You, you sold you sold a, a wolf ticket. <laughs> there <laughs> we go. what I had when I graduated from Buff State. Yes, you got a, you got a wolf degree. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Perez yes. is with us uh, this morning on Buffalo What's Next uh, for another uh, four minutes or so. Let, uh, we did, you know, I really wanted to get into the real estate. I'm here. I'm free. But we only have a couple of minutes yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, they're like we talked about earlier, the demolitions have stopped for the most part. Sure. There are a lot of empty lots in the city of Buffalo. Yes, sir. Are they opportunities for building? What do you think? What, yes. what are the possibilities? Yes, they are truly opportunities for building. Um, I am a new developer here in Buffalo. Um, started out, I purchased uh, my three-unit home, so to speak to that, so how to get out of that rat race, you got to start getting those assets. You know, um, I read books like Robert Kiyosaki's uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I went on YouTube, people. There's a lot of information, free information on YouTube that you can learn from and benefit from, and I started learning about real estate, got my um, loan origination license, went and got my HUD certification, worked at NACA, uh, closed over $14 million worth of loans. And then I started realizing, oh, I want to buy some assets, buy more properties, but the purchase prices were getting too high. Sure. And then I started looking, and I'm like, well, I have a big, massive backyard, you know, in my North Buffalo three-unit home. Why don't I just build on it? I'm coming from New York City. You know, we build vertically. We live right, vertically. Right, right. So I'm like, all right, let me just do that. So then I went, I put the initiative in, and I reached out to the city. I asked them about the green code, and things are within the green code. You know, if you're a homeowner or a potential homeowner and you want to see changes in your neighborhood, you need to go to the places that have the authority over what is going on in your government, right? Speak to your elected officials, speak to the department heads, and find out what you can do to be a solution and provide that solution. So I researched, I found an architect, I found a mechanical electrical engineer, I combined those plans together, I submitted it to the city, and now we're at the last stage of approval to get this project started. And I think that this is going to help catapult uh, me and the movement of black financial equity rights movement, and I'm coining that here in okay, Buffalo like and for the world, um, we got to now start owning and we got to start building. So we can't keep asking for others and every other group to come out and help us. We have to now do it within ourselves and for ourselves. That was Paul Perez. He was with us earlier this week on Buffalo What's Next, and uh, we have aired that conversation this morning. Talia Rodriguez from the Westside Promise neighborhood scheduled to be with us. We'll be rescheduled for a future conversation here. Thomas O'Neill White up next. He talks with Jessica Bauer Walker about the Community Health Work Network of Buffalo. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. WBFO is your home for trusted news about your community. 
and WBFO The Bridge connects music and community. Hear local music from bands like Pharaoh from Buffalo, Tedesco Knows Best from Niagara Falls, and Stress Dolls from Buffalo every day on WBFO The Bridge. Listen at WBFO 88.7 HD2 or WNED 94.5 HD2 or stream it from WBFOTheBridge.org or the WBFO The Bridge mobile app. PBS Kids fun and educational content is available wherever you are in Western New York, whenever you want. Live stream the channel at WNED.org slash PBS Kids. And while you're there, you can play games, watch videos from your favorite shows like Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, Molly of Denali, and Alma's Way. And you'll find resources for parents and teachers. Visit WNED.org slash PBS Kids today. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. Hello, and I'm Thomas O'Neill White, and I'm talking health disparities and community services with Community Health Worker Network of Buffalo founder and executive director, Jessica Bauer-Walker. Jessica, thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having me. For people who may not know, what are health disparities and how do they contribute to the social determinants of health for a certain community? Health disparities are sort of this unequal distribution of how health outcomes take place um, in terms of how long people live and their quality of life. And so we see lots of disparities related to race, related to social economic status that really shouldn't be there. Um, there's a concept called excess death, and you can sort of measure life expectancy based on people's race, where they live, how much money they make. And you can look at that in relation to things like diabetes and stroke and heart disease. Um, so it's a, a concept that is really troubling and extremely pervasive in Buffalo in terms of how we can know how long people will live and what their quality of life will be. Can you cite a specific example of that locally? Sure. So we talk about... Um, across social determinants of health, which means health is where people live, work, go to school and play. And so again, you can look um, at neighborhoods and you can see in specific neighborhoods concentrated on the east and west side of Buffalo, uh, where folks who have lower income and are generally black and brown people um, have high rates of lead poisoning, right? We have um, lead poisoning that is higher than Flint, Buffalo, or Flint, Michigan and wow. Buffalo. Wow. Um, it, it's a huge issue. It is... Um, um, again, um, racially and economically segregated. And so that's that's one example. We can look at birth outcomes and see that black women in particular have um, much higher rates of maternal mortality and um, tend to have more C-sections, have babies earlier um, than their white counterparts and uh, more economically advantaged counterparts. We can look at education outcomes and see that, um, you know, the, the concentration in specific schools, even in within Buffalo Public School 
calls related to um, black and Latinx children. If you look at the data from the state education department, you can see that math and ELA scores are significantly lower than their white and suburban counterparts. So there's lots and lots of data sets that show us that there is um, this unequal distribution and we know that how much money you make and your education status is going to lead to employment opportunities and the types of things that allow you to get healthy and fresh food, to live in a safe environment, to have access to high quality health care. So all of these things are really intimately interconnected and we see this um, play out pretty dramatically in Buffalo and Western New York. Now, how does the community health worker network of Buffalo help in this regard? Um, you, you train people, you offer services. What does that, what does that all look like? We founded the Community Health Worker Network back um, about 11 years ago, and really it was a way to have a bottom-up solution for health equity. So we were seeing a lot of these issues. Um, you know, I, I was working on a grassroots level as a community organizer, talking to my colleagues who are physicians, who are academics, um, who are working, you know, in other sectors like housing and community development and education, and seeing, again, these patterns that are all really interconnected. And we really needed a, a movement, really, of folks who were of and from the community, who saw these things and who understood and who could connect to community in a different way. Um, it's a really different model. We say a lot of times, nothing about us without us is for us. And so we need to make sure that we don't just have folks who are looking at this data and coming up with solutions for community, but that we're really co-producing solutions and saying what works for us. So this is really a model where um, we have people who have gone through some of these things you know if there's a community health worker that's working with somebody that has diabetes oftentimes they have diabetes themselves and so they know what that's like to have to navigate those services do medication management um, you know look at the diet and exercise and those lifestyle pieces as well I do a lot of my work in Buffalo Public Schools because I'm a parent and I can connect to parents in a different way there's there's nothing like actually having gone through the system um, mm -hmm. you know and I've leaned on a lot of my friends who have expertise in navigating social services or um, Section 8 housing or things like that uh, because, you know, you can read about this stuff in a book, but there's nothing like actually experiencing it for yourself. And so that's really the work that we do as community health workers. And you wanted to put a point on, yes, this is Community Health Worker Network of Buffalo, but it's more than healthcare. Right. So we say a lot of times health is more than health care. Um, we are in a social determinants of health model. We know that health care actually only makes up about 5% of how healthy people are. It's really important. We want to make sure that people have access to high quality health care, but prevention is the most important component. So we know that if people are getting access to um, healthy and fresh foods, they have fresh air to breathe and places to go and exercise, they have healthy relationships, there's not violence in their homes or in their neighborhoods, they're going to be a lot healthier. You know, going to the doctor is a important part, but it's a significantly smaller portion than all these other components that make up health. And so we've got community health workers working um, really across all those different sectors of social determinants of health. And um, we have to correct people a lot of times when they say community health care workers, we say community health workers. And it seems like a small difference to some, but it's a really significant one to us. Along with Duville University, uh, Community Health Network of Buffalo recently received $3 million, almost nearly $3 million mm -hmm. uh, in grant money from the U.S. Health Resources Services Administration to, uh, to help tackle these health disparities in the region. What, what type of training does $3 million buy? Yeah, so we um, 
have been doing this training for, uh, again, a little bit over a decade, and it's really a different type of model. We use a pedagogy called popular education, and this is a format that was used in the civil rights movement and really movements around the world. And it's a, a model where everybody's teaching and everybody's learning. We have folks come into our training who have limited English proficiency or um, you know limited literacy levels. We have an intergenerational parent and student community health worker training program where we have youth as young as 13 and we've got grandparents that are um, elders, you know, into their 80s. And it is a format where everybody can kind of learn together. So it's very experiential. We're working on building those natural qualities of community health workers, which are things like being a trusted member of community, having compassion, strong communication skills. Um, And then we build additional knowledge and skills in terms of service navigation, care coordination, um, having a trauma-informed approach. And so we have this this uh, framework of core competencies. These are the core competencies that you need to be an effective community health worker and really do community engagement with an equity perspective. And how did you come about uh, making this collaboration with uh, DUville University? What do they bring to the table? So one of the things that I think is really important is that we're working both top down and bottom up. So we know we can train an army of folks on the ground. And um, if we don't have connections with our academic institutions, with city and county government, with local philanthropy, it's going to be really difficult to make systems change. Um, we use an analogy of, of trying to move upstream because oftentimes we find we're dealing with people in crisis and we're just pulling folks out of the river and sometimes there's too many people to pull out and so unless we really move upstream and change the system um, you know some of our community health workers that have come in have they don't have a high school education um, and we know we need to put them on a track where community health work might be the starting point and getting this certificate for you know a 28-hour program but we can set them on a track where they can get additional education you know they can get their um, high school equivalency and they can go on to get an associate's, bachelor's, or even master's degree. And we have had people who've literally come in off the street, um, starting as a client at, at an organization, and have worked their way up to getting their master's and beyond. And we've been doing this work long enough where we can see those changes. Um, so it's really important for us to create those pipelines. And we talk about community health workers as both a workforce and a movement for that reason. So collaborating with uh, with DUville is uh, adding an extra few paddles as you as you move upstream. Exactly. Are there are there any other partners involved? Yes. Um, so we've we've built really deep and broad partnerships over the years. We've got lots of grassroots partners. Um, we've trained folks in organizations like Buffalo Prenatal Perinatal Network, um, who works on child and maternal health. Push Buffalo, who's doing housing um, work and community development. Most valuable parents who are doing work with um, parents and in violence prevention. So we've got a, a vast array of community partners across social determinants of health. And then we have different institutions institutional partners. Um, you mentioned Duval University. We also have University of Buffalo at the table and a few other academic partners um, on a college and university level, Erie County Department of Health, Buffalo Public Schools. Um, so really, it, it is a pretty broad um, mm-hmm. collaboration where we, we have that model of it takes a village and we're centering the voices and experiences of community health workers and directly impacted people. But we're clear that we need stakeholders and allies to make this work. You're listening to Buffalo What's Next. I'm Thomas O'Neill White, and I am talking health disparities and community service with Community Health Worker Network of Buffalo founder and executive director Jessica Bauer Walker. 
when we talk about training people, and I wanted to circle back to this, what are they being trained to do? How are they, are they a stopgap between the community and these higher ups? How does that work? We like to talk about community health workers as a bridge. Um, there's very few people who really understand and know how to navigate community and have those relationships there and understand and know how to navigate systems. And that's where a community health worker and our network is really critical because we have relationships on both sides. We know how to speak the language of community. We know how to speak the language of the system. And so oftentimes we find ourselves, um, you know, for, for example, for me, you know, almost on a daily basis, working with parents and students um, understanding what they're going through because I've gone through it myself with my own family and many other families um, but I also have those relationships in the system and so I know the language of um, of the public school system I know people in that system um, and how to how to get help I'm not cold calling over there right so mm-hmm. I know how to navigate somebody through that um, and and help to make sure that the dots are connected and people are able to get what they need and then on the system side we're also doing a lot of education on that side as well right so so we're um, supporting policy and systems change. We're making sure that, you know, if we have, um, you know, patients going into a healthcare system or parents going into Buffalo Public Schools, um, that they're getting the types of services that they need. We did a huge campaign during the COVID um, pandemic on testing, on vaccination, you know, going right into the streets, knocking on people's doors, answering their questions. Um, they're going to trust people who are of and from their community in a different way than they are mm-hmm. the quote unquote system so that that's a lot of the work we do bridging communicating um, teaching people how to how to navigate and and just work through stuff with folks you know a lot of times we see people in a situation in crisis even acting in ways that are violent and there's root cause issues to that and so a lot of it is digging through that understanding community and culturally responsive trauma-informed approaches, um, accompanying people on that path, helping them, doing really whatever it takes to get people what they need and to empower them to be healthy in a way that they determine. These skills and and all of this all together, it must, must take a lot of ability, having people skills, and a lot of patience. Mm-hmm. It does. Um, and, and that's the thing. I think you have to love people. You know, there's a lot of folks who do um, care work and who who work with our community. But at the core of it, um, you don't always have to like people, but you got to love them, you know, (laughs) Uh, because people can be challenging. Right. This work is very difficult work, community work. You know, a lot of people, it it looks interesting from the outside. But once you get inside it, it is really hard, especially in our community right now. So you just you got to love people Um, and it takes work. You know, every day I have to remind myself um, doing this work and navigating systems, working with challenging people, both in community and in some of the systems that we navigate, um, people are doing their best. Uh, people got a story and we just got to, you know, love people where they're at and, and help people move through difficult situations. And, you know, we're all in this together at the end of the day. You describe this, this work that you do as a movement. Can you can you get a little bit more into that? Mm-hmm. Um, so again, you know, we talk about nothing about us without us is for us, and we mean that. A lot of times, um, folks want to have community people at the table. And it is more of a service and deficit type of approach, or um, it's sort of like we get invited to the table. How about this idea? 
um, we really want to be co-producing solutions, again, in a top-down, bottom-up way. There's a lot of language around diversity, equity, inclusion. What does that really look like? We are working with the Community Health Worker Network of Buffalo and the Community Health Worker Movement to build a diverse, equitable, inclusive group of people. Um, it's intergenerational. It's intercultural. It's interracial. You know, everybody is welcome. Um, and the folks that are at the table that are directly impacted have got to be at the center of how decisions are made. When we're talking about health disparities, when we're talking about racial equity, people who are directly impacted have to be leading that movement um, and everybody else needs to get behind them. So when we talk about a shift in terms of how things are done in a holistic preventative way, um, that's what we mean when we say this, this is a movement, not just a workforce. What does a successful outcome look like? How is that determined? Um, for a community health worker doing working with an individual or for the movement in general? I would say both and then from the individual who is who is being helped. Mm -hmm. I think from an individual and family perspective, um, you know, this is part of the work that we do is we work with people for them to, to self-determine. They decide what being healthy means to them. We use a framework of stages of change, right? Sometimes I want somebody to um, stop engaging in the behavior, you know, uh, go to the doctor, do a certain thing, but I can't make them do that. They, that's their path. That's their journey. So we use techniques like harm reduction. You know, what is the next step? What is the thing right in front of you? And we've seen dramatic changes. You know, there's, we have so many stories of just people's lives being transformed. Um, you got to be patient with people. Again, you got to mm -hmm. love them. And, and they have to decide what that means to them. A lot of times funding will go to a specific thing, right? Um, when we are working on COVID vaccination, there's a lot of people who are resistant to getting vaccinated. There's a lot of people who are resistant to making lifestyle changes to control their diabetes. Um, so what can they do, right? What, what are people able to do and what is the next step? And people will make that decision in their time on their own terms. Um, but, but we want people to decide what does being healthy mean to you? And oftentimes, you know, we come in and we're working on a diabetes initiative and somebody needs housing or somebody's having a domestic violence situation. We're not working on getting somebody to eat healthier if they're in housing, if they don't have a place to live, right? Or if they're in a violent situation where they're scared for their life. So it, it's about meeting people where they're at and, and accompanying them on that journey, right? Doing it with them. And I think it's the same thing on a macro level. Um, we got to be doing this together and we have to kind of decide um, how, how we're working to change things, right? We we do a lot of coalition work. We, for example, um, there's a lead safe task force and you've got institutional folks at the table, you've got community people at the table. We have um, very different ways of working. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so it takes some time and effort to um, have a shared vision and to, to figure out how to work together. Um, and we've tried different things, like we'll go out as street teams together, right? And people kind of have different roles. We've done training with um, community health workers and with housing inspectors from the city together. So how do we build kind of some shared ways of working and beliefs so that we can shift things together, I think is a key part of how we work as community health workers. How do you keep things fresh? How, uh, what else needs to happen to sustain that success? Because from what you've said, it seems like burnout can be a real thing. Yes, thank you for bringing that up. Burnout can be a real thing because this work is really hard. And we have done a lot more work around self-care. 
um, trauma-informed care, understanding that trauma exists on an individual level. A lot of us got into this work as community health workers because we went through something. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes it's easier, actually, and I find this with a lot of community health workers, um, to not be dealing with our own stuff and dealing with other people's stuff. And we got to deal with our own stuff, too, because that's going to come back at one point or another. Um, So that's where the network is really important, especially because we're working with systems who were, you know, built on a structure that is oppressive, Um, you know, Mm. (laughs) colonialism and slavery and everything that we've dealt with that has led to the issues that we're dealing with in Buffalo and the aftermath of the massacre on May 14th. um, That stuff has been seeded for a long time and it plays out in our lives and our work. And so we work to create spaces. We have retreats, we have self-care sessions, we check up on each other. Uh, Whenever we have meetings, we feed people healthy food. We do a mindfulness practice. We um, work with partners like Erie County Restorative Justice Coalition and Native American Community Services to make sure that we're really doing this healing from the inside out. For folks who wanna join community health workers, what should they expect? There will be a lot more publicity around opportunities for folks to get trained. Um, This federal grant that we have is a great opportunity because it allows us to do things like provide people a stipend to participate in the program. Oftentimes, low-income folks have to keep working. They have child care needs. They can't just take time out, even if you can get a scholarship for a program. So there will be scholarship opportunities. There will be ways to make sure that folks' social determinants of health are met while they're going through their training um, so there'll be a lot more coming out this we just got word of this grant a couple weeks ago so um, folks can you know check out our website our Facebook page and um, we will be getting the word out about ways that people can learn about trainings um, and we'll be offering them on a regular basis for people to get plugged in we've got uh, about six or seven minutes left I've got two more questions for you um, one is regarding the uh, parent student health worker initiative you are a big part of that um addressing school violence where do we go from here yeah um i I am really passionate about education because i think if we can build strong children then we're not dealing with a lot of these issues that we see in adults and so public health and public education are incredibly important um on on a national level the center for disease control and prevention and um, acds which is a national academic entity has a whole school whole community whole child model and it really talks about integrating public health and public education. Um, So in our early years of building the community health worker network, you you know, we really saw that in a need to be working in Buffalo Public Schools in particular, and we started a parent and student community health worker program where we would, in the summers, usually recruit parents and students um, in an intergenerational format, uh, spend these four days together, and then we would deploy the parents and students during the school year on school wellness teams in the building. We would work on campaigns for different health initiatives. And through that, we've gotten recess back in the schools. We've gotten 35 more physical education teachers hired. We've gotten mental health clinics in the schools. We've gotten a condom availability program, salad bars in the school. I mean, so many things. And it's really been driven by what parents and students want. Um, And so we're really excited that uh, the partnership is there with Buffalo Public Schools. We trained a a core of um, 25 parents and students this past summer, and um, Buffalo Public Schools has a commitment to getting those school wellness teams up and running again and helping us to scale up this program. So we're really excited about that opportunity. You've got the the ear of uh, 
Superintendent Dr. Tanja Williams. Yeah, and we appreciate that Dr. Williams has prioritized health and safety, and um, we're working together kind of on reframing that issue of violence. You know, a lot of times there's there's different schools of thought in terms of how to prevent violence. One is more law and order and more police, more metal detectors, things like that. We take a much more holistic approach, and it seems like um, Buffalo Public Schools under Dr. Williams' leadership is open to that. And what I say all the time is what keeps us really safe is our relationships. And so when we have people like community health workers, other parents and students checking on each other, um, noticing when somebody might be a little bit off, maybe they need something, maybe there's a mental health issue going on. Um, There's a lot of good research and and a lot of good experience that I have in terms of dealing with those root causes of violence so that we can prevent problems from happening in the first place. And the last thing I wanted to ask you, and I try to ask this of of all my guests, it's a very broad question, but... What does Buffalo need from your vantage point? Uh, Buffalo needs a lot of things, you know, but I think um, we need to stop working in silos and we really need to be working together. And and that's where, you know, my work as a community health worker and building a community health worker network and our larger umbrella organization is called Connect. And it's really about connecting. Um, We have to find ways to build relationships. We have to talk to people who um, are not like us. We have to understand why some of the things um, exist, right? I mean, we have to continue to explore why um, we had a a massacre at a grocery store on May 15th and that that didn't just happen and we need to move on and heal from it, right? We need to continue to understand why these things happen on a national level and a local level, build relationships with each other and directly impacted folks and work in holistic ways. You know, a lot of times people pick one thing to work on and I think there's, you know, importance in that. We need some of us that are out here really trying to connect the dots, build bridges, um, work with each other in new and different ways and really do that healing work on on every level, individual, family, community, racial, historical. Um, it's big work, but it's, it's good work and we need to lean into that and and really be working together as a village. Are you hopeful? I am hopeful. I couldn't continue to do this work if I wasn't. Um, And that's why I really like working with youth because they have so much energy and optimism. Mm -hmm. I love when we have a space where we have both youth and elders because they bring uh, such an energy and a wisdom to the space. So when when I'm talking with youth and when I'm talking with the elders, it it grounds me and it reminds me of why we do this work and that um, people have been fighting these fights for a long time and there's been a lot of struggles and, and we just need to continue to show up every day and do our best. You are listening to Buffalo What's Next, Thomas O'Neill White speaking with Community Health Worker Network of Buffalo founder and executive director Jessica Bauer Walker. What's next for you? In the in the little time we have, what's next? I'm going to continue to just keep doing what we're doing here. Um, I, I want to recruit more people into the work that we're doing and get people excited about doing community work and really centering again. Um, I think the solution is having people who are of and from the community who are dealing with a lot of these issues related to disparities being the leaders, being the change that, that they want to see. And so I'm going to keep working on empowering people who have been historically marginalized um, and make sure that everybody has a voice. And uh, that's the work that I love and am passionate about. So I'm going to keep showing up every day, doing my best to make that happen. Jessica, thank you for, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. 
and you are listening to WBFO News from Buffalo, Toronto Public Media, WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.